Well, this morning is our, our sermon message. We're looking at Psalm 2. And I want to give a little bit of background on this. Um, the, the first two psalms present two different pictures. The first one shows us the, the righteous man who is rooted in God's word and who's flourishing like, like a tree on the planted by the river. But then the Psalm 2 shows us a picture of, of God's work in a very broad scale. It shows us the big picture of his kingdom and of his king. And that's what we're going to be focusing on this month. We looked last month at several of the Psalms that focus on the individual and their response to the Lord and how they flourish in his presence and with his power and goodness. And here we're going to see uh, the Psalms about, about the kingdom and the king. And of course, all of these kind of overlap, and it's not always a strict difference, but it's kind of an angle from which we can kind of think about the Psalms as a whole. This type of Psalm that we have here, where it's, ex- it's speaking of the king, is rooted in what was happening at the time, because uh, God had promised after human beings revolted against him that though this had been the work of the devil, the work of the devil would be crushed, and the head of the serpent would be crushed by the future deliverer. And then uh, God called Abraham, and he had his son Isaac and his son Jacob, and they had 12 sons. And Jacob said that the scepter would come out of, out of Judah. And then eventually, out, out of Judah came uh, one named David. Israel had asked for a king, and God, said, and God said, I'll give you a king even though it's a bad idea. And that was, man was named Saul, and he didn't work out very well. And God uh, rejected him as king, but then he called up David. And David uh, was successful, and he captured Jerusalem, and he built his house. But he said, I want to build a house for the Lord. And then the Lord sent a prophet and said, you're not going to build a house for me. I will build a house for you. And he said, out of your, one of your descendants, your sons, will come one who will reign forever. And out of that, David, meditating on that promise through the Holy Spirit, saw the glory of Christ. That was to come, one of his own descendants. And he writes a a lot of psalms about that, that are very specifically focused on that. Of course, all of the psalms, we could say, point to Christ in one way or another, as we'll see. But then there's some that are just really explicit. One of those is Psalm 2. And so we're going to see that uh, today. So let's listen to God's holy, inspired word. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, today I become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son. Or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed 
are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. O Lord, our great and awesome God, you are indeed the one who reigns over the earth and you give it to whomever you will. And you've given it to your king, our Lord Jesus. So Lord, help us to see how great is his reign, to glorify you in that, to give you praise, to give you honor, to give you worship, to trust your word, to believe it, to make it more a part of our lives. Help us to digest it, to learn, to conform our lives to it, that we might live as those who believe in a king and a kingdom that you have ordained. Oh Lord, we pray that you would teach us, even as you've given this word long ago by your Holy Spirit, teach us through your Holy Spirit. Forgive all our sins, enable us to see you more clearly. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. One thing about power exercised in this world is that it often has a, a dark side. The axiom is true, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, it, you know, on e- whenever there's a political division, people can always point to some sort of hypocrisy because it almost always exists. We almost always put our thumb on a scale for ourselves and our pride. But yet, in spite of that, we continue to look for power. We look for leadership. And, you know, you can see this uh, every four years, the way, not our presidential cycle, right? Or maybe it was in every two years, because it it's like starting like right now, right? That we're, we're thinking about president. If we could just get a new president in, and they would, then everything would be okay. Then everything would be great. Then we would see progress. And when a new president comes, he's in, and he, he's put in office, and we say, now things are going to be set right. Or now things are going to be terrible, right? One, whichever side you're on. Or you can, you can see it in uh, the sports world. You have all the hopes and dreams for your, for your team, and yet they've done terrible for years. And then what do we look for? A new coach, a new leader. Now that he's here, now we're going to see success at long last. Well, the Bible and, and, and our experience of reality in general tell us that this is, not co- this is not completely wrong, right? And we can look to leaders too much, but the fact is the, the world needs leadership. And a lot of the great progress of history is made because of leadership. And, and the Bible teaches us that too. It teaches us that God uses people to do big things in the world, but it teaches us even more that there is one leader that we are looking to who's really going to make everything right. And that's what a lot of these psalms are about. They're looking at for a leader who will come and set the world right. And to recognize this too, when a leader comes, not everybody agrees. And that's what we're going to see here in this passage, is we're going to see about God's chosen king and the inevitability of his exaltation. I want you to see three things here in this passage. And uh, by the way, if you have your bulletin, I do have a little outline there if you want to try to follow it. I try to keep, I try to actually say the things that are in there. Sometimes I mess up. But um, that should help you follow along, especially if English is not your primary language. Um, you can use that little outline in the bulletin. So the, so the three things we're going to see are the perspective of earth, the perspective of heaven, and our appropriate response to that perspective. So first of all, look at the perspective of earth. And the perspective of earth is very simple. It is that we are the masters, that we are the ones who are in charge, and we can do what we want. In, in Psalm 2, it says that the nations are conspiring. The nations are plotting. 
They rise up and they band together against the Lord. The Lord is the one who reigns, but we see that, that the people of the earth say, no, we'll be in charge. And so they say, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles, as if the rule of God was something terrible. Instead, they say, we'll be in charge, and then they end up making a mess of it, as they usually do. Now, the Bible applies this passage in, in the book of Acts to Herod, Pontius Pilate, and the Jewish leaders. What happened in the book of Acts chapter 4 is that the people, as you heard about in Acts chapter 2, were having success as preaching Jesus. And then the leaders of the people said, stop doing that. And then they went, and what did they do? As they felt the threats of the leaders, they went to prayer. They went to prayer. And they cited this verse. And they said, you said long ago that this was going to happen. That when your king was there, there was going to be people fighting against him. And so they said, Lord, help us to speak boldly. Not just to see the threats, but to see you above the threats. And so you can see that that was applied in that day, but it's still happening in our day. The king is still reigning, but people are still conspiring against him. You can see all over the world in in heartbreaking narratives that, that, that governments and leaders are seeking to destroy the church and seeking to to tear it down. And you can see that um, I was talking to a woman not too long ago who was in a land where, where uh, on Easter Sunday um, their church was bombed and killed and people within it were killed as they celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And just that you could see the anger, the tear, tears, the anguish over what had happened. But of course, you know, sometimes it's not always in the name of another religion or another philosophy. Sometimes within the church itself, there's a revolt against the Christ in the name of Christ. And people will justify almost anything in the name of Christ. And so we see even that is a way the Lord is opposed. But in addition, we can also say that probably what's even more common, say, in our land and in the area in which we live, is not necessarily that people are saying, I don't want anything to do with you, God, but more that we just ignore God. And that we live as if there was no king. And as if we were just in charge and could do whatever we wanted. We don't think about him. We don't give him any attention. And we just do what we want. That's a little bit different than what's described here. But it's the same spirit. We're in charge. We don't have to think about the king. We don't have to give him any honor. So that's the perspective of earth. But what's the perspective of heaven on all this? It's very interesting. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. God is laughing. Like this idea that you're going to bring an end to my kingdom, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's so crazy. It's so out of place in reality that it's actually funny. So that the Lord is laughing. He's scoffing at them. What in the world are you thinking, peoples of this world? And you know, um, you ever get concerned when you see the news or the headlines or politics or what's going on in the world? Um, I know I do. I'm sure all of you do to one degree or another. You see the big movement of the nations. You see opposition to the church. You see opposition to Christ. You see innocent people being crushed. Well, and it's easy to let that stuff take over our hearts. But when we come to the Bible, we see that we need to see not only those things, but we also need to see the Lord who is above them. 
and who is laughing at it and who's going to deal with it. And you see, that's what the Psalms do over and over again. In Psalm 59 that we looked at on Wednesday night, we saw that David was had some people were coming to take his life. Some very scary people, a group of people who wanted to kill him. And he says, but you, Lord, laugh at them. Because when he brought it to prayer, he saw the Lord. He's like, the Lord's way more powerful than these people who are trying to kill me. This is, I can see him. I can work through this. I can, even though it's scary, I can see the God who's above them. And I can begin to move forward with my fears. You see, that's what the Psalms do. And that's, a, that's like the big thing I want you to take out of all the Psalms. Is that often as we struggle, as often as we, as we experience difficulties or trials or anxiety or anger, that that's a call to prayer. That that's a call to sing to the Lord. I almost want to say to Christians, never think about politics again without bringing the things that make you angry to the Lord. Imagine the perspective we've had on it, if that's how we approached it. If we approached the, reading the news in a prayerful position on our knees. But in your daily life as well. And what it says here is that God is going to act. He's not going to let things go on forever. He rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath. And so you can see that this has happened all throughout history too. The people have risen against the church and they've been knocked down. They, they oppose it and they've been knocked down. In the Roman Empire in the 4th century, the Christianity was, after experiencing a lot of persecution... Christianity was legalized, and, and it began to flourish. And then one of the emperors said, no, we're going back to paganism. We're throwing out all this Christianity stuff. And he lasted about two years, and he failed miserably. And he's purported to have said as he died, O Galilean, speaking to Jesus, thou hast conquered. One of my favorite stories of this, too, is a man named Voltaire, who, um, who was a, a leader in the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment brought a lot of good things. But some people went overboard. Seeing, seeing that we could understand nature, they thought, well, then nature's all there is. And so Christianity is just superstition. So Voltaire predicted that within a century that Christianity would be gone. Well, today, the house that he owned is now used by a Bible society to print Bibles and send them all over the world. And you can see, even today, you know, as, 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 the, as the West began, where Christianity was flourishing began to discover the rest of the world and get more acquainted with it, they said, you know, we need to hear from the rest of the world. Maybe we, we shouldn't embrace Christianity. Well, now Christianity spread all over that area that we got to know over Africa and, and Asia and, and Central South America. And so, and, and what have they found? They said, well, we kind of like Orthodox Christianity. And that's what we want to do. And then the people who had said, let's hear from them, have now saying, well, we don't really want to hear from you anymore. Um, because they, they, don't, they don't believe in the supernatural. But the, the people throughout the world have embraced it, and it's grown like crazy. You know, we should not be in despair. The gospel is growing. Churches are being planted all over the world because the Lord has a king, and that's the, the next perspective of heaven. Why is all this happening? Because heaven has a king. Listen, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And so... The Lord says, I have installed my king. It's my decree. You are my son. Today I have become your father. So who is this king? Well, we speak of sons and daughters of God by adoption. That is, who are not naturally sons of God, but get counted as sons of God. 
And that's all believers in Jesus. And then we also speak of the natural Son of God who is eternally begotten of the Father. And how do, you, how do you express being eternally begotten of the Father? Today I have begotten to you. Today is the eternal present. The Lord has begotten the Son, and that's the one he has placed. The second person of the Trinity is the King. And he says that this King gets not only one little slice of land on the Mediterranean Sea, but he gets the whole earth. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Or as Isaiah says it, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. He says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And that king is our Lord Jesus Christ. When they asked him, are you the son of God? He said, yes, I am the son of God. Now, anybody can claim to be the son of God. I could ask you and you say, yeah, I'm that. And so, but it's one thing to claim it. It's another thing to be able to actually show it. And it's one thing to be able to say, and how did Jesus show it? Well, he said, you can kill me, but I will rise from the dead in three days. It's one thing to be able to say that you can actually do it. It's another thing entirely to actually pull it off. And that's what Jesus did. And that's how he showed that I am that king that I said that I was. And then he he rose from the dead. He was on earth for 40 days. He ascended into heaven. And then he sent out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost to show that he was truly installed as king. And that leads us to the question, when did he become king? Well, obviously, in one sense, as God, he was the eternal Son of God of the same nature as the Father. He's reigned from all eternity. But in another sense, he became a human. He became a human, and then he was had a right to the throne. But then he was installed on the day of ascension, and so now he sits as king over the world. This what we're talking about is happening now. He is the king who is installed over the world right now. All the passages that speak of him being installed as king, the apostles said, those are happening right now. Those, we are living in the time where the king has been installed. And it's a time of conflict, right? As it's described here. But it's also a time of the growth of his kingdom. Because he is going to rule them. It says, verse 9, you will break them with a rod of iron, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. So, if you're going to mess with the Son of God, you're, go- you're not going to win. He is going to defeat you. That is the fact. And so we need to try a different tact. And Charles Spurgeon, I I like how he said it. He said, Ye sinners, seek his grace, whose wrath ye cannot bear. Ye sinners, seek his grace, whose wrath he cannot bear. And that leads us to the last point, which is, what is then our appropriate response to this king? Well, the first thing, is to take note of the king. Realize that the king is there. Listen to verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. And so they're to be wise. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is knowing how to live in accordance with reality. But in order to live in accordance with reality, you have to know something about reality. And the reality is that this world is not all there is, but there is a king who is above it. And so they are to be wise by understanding reality and to think about the fact that there's a king. And so for us, 
that's, the, that's one of the big parts of our Christian life, is to learn to think more in terms of the fact that there is the king, that he is reigning and ruling. You know, we get doing our own thing and we kind of forget about it, but we need to make it more a part of our lives, more a part of our hearts. Um, I often use the Book of Common Prayer, which is from the Anglican Church, as just a guide and help in devotions and prayer. And one of the things, they have morning and evening prayer that people would use every single day, and they would recite the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and Jesus Christ, and so on, all the things he did, so that they become a part of us. That's what it means to become wise. Day in, day out, we think about that. Second, the appropriate response is to humble ourselves before the king. So that's what he says. You need to serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or kiss the son, or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. So we need to say, recognize that he is in charge and we are not. He is the Lord. He is the king. And notice, it says this not just of the average person, but he speaks primarily to those who are the great of the earth. The kings of the earth are to submit themselves. And of course, why did they say this of the kings? Because when they thought of nations, most nations had a king. Even democracy in Greece was still centuries away uh, from this. So if you're thinking about a nation, you're thinking about a king. And what's interesting is that when the gospel went forward, it went out to the Roman Empire, and, and the big part of it was when the king or emperor took hold of it. But then uh, the ancestors of most, uh, uh, the majority of us here went in and destroyed civilization and, uh, and basically made a wreck of things. And we didn't believe in Jesus or anything. And then people eventually came and told our ancestors about the gospel, and then we repented. And one of the ways that happened was the, the kings would embrace the gospel and like their whole tribe would then embrace the gospel. And it was a long process of growth, and they were doing lots of crazy things, even after they proclaimed the name of Christ, kind of like what we do when we become Christians. Uh, but, they, but kings began to acknowledge the Lord. And one of the interesting things, that, it made me think of some studies I'd done years ago of the Eastern Roman Empire. And the Eastern Roman Empire was the kind of the continuation of the Roman Empire after the fall in the West, in Constantinople, now Istanbul. And, and it was just, I was reminded of how the, these emperors, again, lots of faults, lots of things we disagree with, but they were really conscious of the sun, and they wanted to honor him, and they wanted to make him known. And so all over the world, Russians, Turks, Bulgars, Croats, Serbians, many others came to know the gospel through the work of the Roman emperor. And when he would ever leave the city, I, I recorded this prayer from my studies Whenever he would leave the big city, Constantinople, kind of the center of civilization on earth, he said, Lord Jesus, I leave this city in thy hands. Shield it from all misfortune and calamities. Protect it from civil war and from the attack of the barbarians. Make it impregnable that no one may harm it, for it is in thee we put our trust. Thou art the Lord of mercy, the Father of compassion, the God of all consolations. Have mercy on us. Save us, shield us from temptation now and forever. Amen. They kissed the sun. Now, we don't want to reproduce uh, a Christian Roman Empire like many tried to do after that. I think it's a mistake. But what we do want to reproduce is the sense that the sun is reigning and we're under him. And even in a democracy, we should recognize that 
that we don't leave our Christianity at the door when we, when we enter into politics. What we do is we also take into the public sphere the respect and honor for other people that God has also commanded us to have so that we can work together with people from different religions and different groups while at the same time main, maintaining our own convictions. To me, that's, that's the heart of living in the world is being able to say, I stand firm on my principle and yet I'm wide open to other people as well. That's what we're called to do in our democracy, and that's the way we can honor Christ. In a way, we've kind of done, we've kind of done that um, imperfectly, but you can see, you know, why, why, why is we coming to a point where Roe versus Wade going to be overturned? I mean, it's in part because people have not left their Christian convictions at the door. They said, we do not believe this is in conformity with God's law, and they may make other arguments, but they've been involved. And that shows how we can do it. But always with, remember, gentleness and respect. Now, the third thing. The appropriate response is to take, then, refuge in him. So the first is to take note, to to humble ourselves, and then the third is to take refuge in the Lord. Listen to the last phrase. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So many oppose him. And want to get rid of him, what we're called to do here is to flee to him. And what I find particularly interesting here is that when it declares a blessing, it does not say, blessed is the one who does what the king tells us to do. Even though I think that we will be blessed if we do that. What it says is, blessed is, are those who take refuge in him. And that's the call throughout the Psalms. That's one of the most common words you will find. Refuge. Because what it's saying is that we can't do it ourselves. We can't defend ourselves. We need someone to help us. And so we flee to God because he can do more than we can ask or imagine. And so we are called to find in him our salvation, our life, our hope. And so... One of the things we need to see that this tells us that it's not so much what we're doing for the king. It's not so much the obedience we give to him. It's what the king will do for us. And it's what the king will do for the world. And we need to remember that even when we don't act, he is acting. He is working. We don't ever enter into a situation in this world where Jesus is not already at work. And you can see this specifically in the world. When I describe to you, I think of, um, of my friend who was pastor in Cuba. I mean, we think that sometimes things are a little bit hard. They're really not that hard. Here, go live in Cuba and try to be a pastor. Um, they oppose them every turn. They can't even, they, they're forbidden from making money outside the church if they need it. I mean, the, the government has tried everything there. But yet the church keeps growing. My friend, he was the, the district superintendent or of a, of a group of, of 300 churches. And that was just like one small area of Cuba. Jesus keeps advancing his kingdom in spite of what they, what they do. In China, as, you, as we well know, I mean, clearly, government totally opposed to the church. Makes it difficult. It's done terrible things to people there. But yet, the church keeps growing. And the church keeps advancing. In spite of all that God has done. And now they're sending out missionaries all over. As one of, their, one of their pastors said, we can go anywhere. I mean, what, what more could any other government do to us than our own government has done to us? 
So, so they have, they've been strengthened to do that. And that's what I want you to see is that God is working. And so I want you to think about God, the big picture. Not just in this passage, but in, in, in all times. You know, to say, to say, not just look at your own individual life, but what is going on in the kingdom. So I was thinking about this. I was thinking about my time in Spearfish, South Dakota, where I was my first church for 10 years. Been here for seven and a half. And I had such a great time of working with other churches. And I had neighbors who were pastors of other churches, and I talked to them all the time. And it was, it was, really, it was really great. And uh, there was a really sense of community. And then I've tried to do some things similar here, and that with some exceptions, like my pastor friend I mentioned. Uh, I found it to be really, really hard. And I've just been surprised. I'm not sure why. But it just doesn't seem to click in the way that it did there. Well, sometimes I feel like giving up, but then I remember, you know, but this isn't about me. Why do I do this stuff? Why do I say that churches should work together? Because it's about the kingdom of God. It's about what God is doing. And God has an interest in the churches working together here. God has an interest in seeing the gospel advance and seeing us give testimony to the fact that even though we have differences with one another, we're still fundamentally united in the faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. And so, we'll keep working. But the good thing, too, is Jesus is not just waiting for us to act individually. He's going to do great things for us and in us. This is why we're blessed. We say we take refuge in him. We're saying, it's not so much what I can do, but what you can do for me. It's what you have done for me, what you are doing for me, what you are doing in me, what you are doing through me. And so, a second key question, the first key question was, what does God think about the kingdom? Am I thinking about the big picture? Second, are you expecting Jesus to do great things? Are you expecting blessing? Are you looking to him to say, this is a great king, and he wants to use me to do great things? Do you believe that? Are you looking for that? That's the other key takeaway I want you to take from here. Is are you thinking about what God has done, is doing, and will do? Expecting God to do more. That's what we should keep asking. That's what it means. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So let me conclude with just two quick stories, kind of to reinforce that point. So the first story is from the Bible, and it's from the day of Pentecost that we, that we read about. The interesting thing there is that Jesus was saying, I'm going to send the Spirit, I'm going to advance the kingdom, but you're going to be my witnesses. And the apostles were just sitting there. They were praying and being together, and they weren't doing anything. They were waiting. Jesus had told them to wait. And then what happens? What happens on Pentecost? Well, Peter really just says, something amazing happens, and Peter just says, this is because of Jesus, He's the king. Amen. And then they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What should we do? Like he didn't give them any call to do anything. They were like, what should we do? And then he says, repent and be baptized. And then God added 3,000 people to the church that day. You see, that's the king. (laughs) He's working. It's Pentecost. It's the giving of the spirit. But it's also the result. People joining the church and, and coming to Christ. And that's the sort of thing we should expect in our day. We should be looking for it. We should be praying for it. We should be seeking it. Because it's not so much what we do for the king, but what the king will do for us, through us, and in us. And I read a story this week that reminded me of that. So this is the second story. 
It's by a man named Cristobal Cruzen, who's a filmmaker and also wrote a, a book that I'm enjoying reading called We Were Christians. And he, he, was, he, he was close to his grandmother, and his grandmother had taught him something of the faith, but he hadn't really taken hold of it. But about a year after his grandmother died, when he was about 10 years old, he felt this strong impulse to pray. And he says, and he, and he prayed, God, let me help people. And that was it. And he said, but that was probably the sincerest prayer that I've ever prayed, the most heartfelt. And then he, he went on with his life, and he had a long spiritual journey. And uh, it actually reminded me a little bit of the journey that um, our brother uh, Charles Stromer um, describes in his book, Odd Man Out. So he goes to this church. He wrote a book about his story. It was about entering into Eastern religions, trying to find the right way, kind of the same era, trying to figure it out. And, uh, and then he, in the course of it, he heard about someone who was doing a lot of good to people. And he remembered that prayer, and he said, you know, that prayer hit him. God, help me to help people. Let me help people. And then, gradually, he found out about Christianity. And he felt like God had not answered that prayer. And he, had, he read through the whole Bible. He says, why didn't God answer that prayer to let me help people? And then, uh, finally, and he was still struggling with doubts about whether he should be a Christian. But finally, he got the answer. And it was simply this. You want to help people but there's something you need to do first. You need to let me help you. You need to let me help you. God wants us to help people. God wants us to use us to be a blessing, but it's always first because we go to him as the refuge. And so it's not so much what we can do for Christ, but what he can do for us to change us, to renew us, and to use us for his glory as we take refuge in him. And that's why He says, blessed are all who take refuge in him because God is going to bless us as we exercise our faith and say, Jesus, do more, more, more in me, through me, for for me, to your glory. So we say what the disciples say, right? Lord, increase our faith that we might take refuge in you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we give you praise, oh, Lord, for you are the one who rules this world. And we praise you that in your infinite wisdom, you have done a marvelous thing to send your son equal in glory with you from all eternity to become a human, to take upon our flesh as a descendant of David, to be exalted and raised up, to be, you, serve you as king, and to be your king over this world. And we thank you that we live in the age in which he has been stalled and that we are seeing his reign extended even in the midst of conflict. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust in him that we, would, that we would not get our sights too set on earth, but that we, would never look, that we would look at earth in light of heaven and see the one who is throne, enthroned, the one who has said, I have set my king there, and that that will cause us to go to him, to take refuge in him, to expect great things from him, and to see the great things that he is doing far beyond us and beside us. And so, Lord, we give you praise. Increase our faith, O Lord, we pray, to trust in you all the more for greater things yet to come. In Jesus' name, amen.